Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You've heard them all before. Religions are belief systems. Religion is a private matter. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Our culture is full of popular stereotypes about religion, both positive and negative. Many people uncritically assume that religion is intrinsically violent, or that religion makes people moral, or that it is simply bullshit. In stereotyping religion, critiquing cliches, Several cliches are understood within a social and historical context, which enables us to see how they are produced and what makes them effective. In my conversation with Brad Stoddart and Craig Martin, the editors of the volume, we explore several of these stereotypes, what makes them possible and desirable for communities that reproduce and curate them, secularization theory, the role of atheism, liberal political discourse about religion, critical thinking, and how this volume stereotyping religion, critiquing cliches, works in the classroom. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Brad Stoddard and Craig Martin about the great new book, Stereotyping Religion, Critiquing Cliches, published with Bloomsbury in 2017. Welcome, guys. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Religion. How, how's it going? Going well. Thanks Good. for having us. Thank you for having yeah. us. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I'm excited to talk about this uh, really uh, fun and interesting book, Stereotyping Religion. Um, as you guys know, as uh, past and future guests of the podcast, um, we always start a little bit about who you guys are as scholars and uh, what brought you to types of questions you ask, your approaches, these types of things. Um, so fill us in a little bit about uh, what what your kind of intellectual perspective is in terms of how you approach the study of religion and perhaps how the how the two of you connected in uh, a kind of academic context. Go for it, Craig. What's that? Oh, I said go for it. Oh, okay. Damn it. Your name was first on the book, so I thought you would go first, but I guess I'll I'll take the hit. Okay, so my name is Craig <laughs> Martin. I'm uh professor of religion at St. Thomas Aquinas College, where I've been for over a decade. I think this is my 11th year there. Um, um, My approach to the study of religion focuses on discourse analysis and ideology critique, um, which didn't didn't start that way. I'm like many people in religious studies. I I started out as an evangelical who was a double major in Bible and Christian ministries, and uh, got fascinated with religion. And but of course, the nature of my interest changed over time, and I dropped the Christian ministries major and went on to grad school to study religion from a more quote unquote secular perspective. Um, and my work, again, has been on kind of discourse analysis and ideology critique. I, I do a lot of critical theory type of stuff. I find that um, one of the most 
uh, one of the strongest influences on my work in the last few years has been Bruce Lincoln. Um, and that's because I'm interested in, in domination and how, how discourses both produce um, society and also naturalize relations of domination in society. Um, so domination has become a central concept in, in, in my work um, and, and in the types of questions that I'm asking and thinking about. Um, I feel like I've, I've uh, given my kind of bio, I think, two or three times before. <laughs> sure. Podcast. So I figured I would talk about that, which is more more kind of a more recent direction. I don't know. What else do you want me to say about myself? That's great. What about you, Brad? Uh, my name's Brad, obviously. <clears throat> I'm an assistant professor at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, which is a small liberal arts college. Uh, I finished my doctorate at Florida State University in uh, 2015, so I've been here about three and a half years. Um, <clears throat> I think I first became interested in the academic study of religion uh, when I was young. I was um, maybe seven years old, and we were reading Greek myths at school. And I remember reading the book and thinking that those stories made about as much sense as my as the stories that I learned as a young Christian. And it just struck me as an alternative and an interesting alternative. And it kind of piqued an interest in learning other uh, religious worldviews and whatnot. Uh, as I grew up, uh, continued to have that interest and an interest in history. And uh, just made sense to me that I would study uh religious studies in college, um, focusing on American religious history. Uh, I like Craig, I'm interested in discourse analysis. I'm increasingly interested in the way the categories of religion and secularity, or more specifically the category of faith functions, um, as a social and economic category. And so I'm currently finishing up a manuscript on faith-based prisons, where I look at how the rhetoric of faith impacts, uh, America's carceral system. And uh, hopefully that'll be uh, a book in the next uh, couple of years here. Great. And then what, what brought you guys together? Where, where did you guys connect? And then how did this project emerge uh, between the two of you? Oh, man. Um, shoot. I don't even remember when we first started talking about this. <laughs> um, was it, Actually, when, was it when you were um, – oh, <clears throat> when was it, Brad? I remember. I remember. I reached out to Russ – for a copy of an essay that he wrote, I believe in MTSR, I want to say it was 2012, give or take a year. And you were then uh, executive secretary of Nasser. And so he kicked that email over to you. Uh, you ended up providing a copy of the chapter I was looking for. And then I think we Facebook friended each other. And um, from there, we just, uh, you know, became friends and colleagues. And then this book was your idea. And you approached me with it. I think you would talk to other people about uh, doing it before. Yeah. So I can say a few words about that. Um, when I was in um, uh, grad school, finishing my PhD, um, I had an idea of a book along the lines of um, 10 dumb ideas about religion or uh, 10 bad ideas about religion or something like that. And I went to um, two of the colleagues that I was um in grad school with one was Donovan Schaefer, who's now at, I can't remember if he's at university of Pennsylvania or Penn state. He's at one of yeah. the, the Pennsylvania he's schools. Penn. Um, and, uh, Jeremy Becky, who's finishing his PhD in, Oh, um, what's the middle Eastern studies program at Chicago. 
Um, I think it's Near Eastern Studies. That's it. He's he's finishing his PhD there, studying with um, oh, who's the guy who does the um, Muhammad Fred Donner, I believe. Yep, that's it. Fred Donner. So so I great guest, Craig. What's that? (laughs) You're a great guest. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I haven't had enough coffee yet today. um, Yeah, it's, it's early, huh? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh it's only two in the afternoon. <laughs> what, I uh I went to them and I was like, this seems like a book that we could write ourselves in six months because we already know what we want to say about this. And we worked on it for like a year and a half, and then um nothing ever came of it because uh I graduated, Donovan graduated, our paths just diverged, and we never. It never came to completion, but I always thought, man, that was a really cool idea. Um, there are so many bad stereotypes about religion out there that we as scholars know exactly why they're problematic, why it frustrates us when our students come in with these stereotypes. Um, there needs to be something out that addresses stereotypes about religion um, from a critical scholarly perspective. Um, so after, I don't know, after eight years, um, later, I, I was like, I should resurrect this and I didn't want to do all the work myself. So I called up Brad Stoddard and I was like, Hey, I have this idea. Would you be interested in helping me bring it to fruition? So, and he, he volunteered cause he was a sucker and, uh, we, we came up with a book proposal an idea that every chapter, and, and I think, uh, we wanted every chapter to one, Here's, here's the cliche or the stereotype about religion. Two, um, here's where it appears in popular culture or popular discourse. Three, here's where it um, historically began. Or here's where it appears in some scholarly literature, unfortunately. Um, and then five, you know, here's a critique or here's here's problems with the stereotype or um more specifically, not just here's what's wrong with it, but more here's the social and political work that this kind of stereotype does in our culture. Um, we, we came up with this proposal, came up with this idea for each chapter to include these elements. And it wasn't difficult to find um, volunteers um, to, to sign up and say, oh, I'd love to do this chapter. I'd love to do that chapter. Um, so some of the stereotypes we came up with ourselves and people just volunteered to pick that some stereotypes um people came to us and they were like this isn't on your list but one thing that i'm interested in is x y or z and we were like that's a really good stereotype let's let's include that as well so the the specific cliches or stereotypes that we ended up including depended on in part on our list um and then in part on what some of the ideas of the contributors um, I, think, I was just going to say, I, I specifically remember Tenzin's chapter as, as being one that, uh, that resulted from a conversation. I forget what we originally asked Tenzin to write, uh, Tenzin Eagle. Um, it was something along the lines of, um, religious tolerance is, is good or something like that. But in conversation with Tenzin, he changed that to talking about how learning about religion leads to tolerance. And so he ended up writing a different chapter than what we had in mind, but uh, it ended up being a, a fantastic chapter. And if there's one other thing, one other thing I would say, building off what Craig said, we invited the scholars, the 10, well, 11 contributors, because one is uh, co-written. 
Uh, we invited them to answer those five questions that Craig answered or that Craig listed off. Uh, and not all of them, not all of the contributors addressed all five of those issues and not, uh, not all of them addressed them with the in the same proportion. So it's not like the book is, you know, uh, there's a formula to each chapter where every chapter dives from section to section to section there. Uh, most chapters addressed, well, all chapters address some version of those five issues. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of diversity uh, within the individual answers. Yeah, for sure. The different authors, um, you know, they, they awesome. had the freedom to approach it from certain perspectives or asking certain questions that were of particular interest to them, um, which hopefully enriched the project by allowing them to play to their strengths. Right. That was the goal. Now, uh, in the in the book, you guys set up uh, in the introduction um, various threads that are going through it, why this study is uh, even important in and of itself. And uh, one of the things that you guys uh, argue or st start the project from is the idea that uh, stereotypes and cliches are powerful political tools and that they discourage critical thinking. Um, now, many people might not think of these two things right off the bat when they think of cliches or stereotypes, but how so? Why, why do you think we should investigate cliches? Um, how do they operate and function? What do you guys mean by this? In terms of investigating cliches, the first, I've, I've taught this book three times, I think, and I think it was the first time I taught it. One of the students said, uh, students came up to me after the class and she said that she had believed uh, most of the cliches that she's read. And so she enjoyed, uh, enjoyed reading the book because it was like she was studying herself. And mm -hmm. she thought that by reading these cliches, um, she was interrogating some of her own thought processes and some of her own assumptions. And so it was helping her to, uh, you know, advance knowledge, uh, which I hope is what we're doing. Um, and Craig, you haven't taught it yet. Is that right? No, I haven't. Um, I mean, in, in general, I, I mean, I, I start or we, we start the book with the example of, you know, um, the things that happened in the 40s in Germany couldn't have happened without the circulation of stereotypes about about Jews that you, you, you can't just bring about social and political change without the distribution of ideology and propaganda that supports the type of political change or political projects that you have in mind. Um, and circulating stereotypes about the Jews were very successful in in eliciting or soliciting the support or or the consent of the German public for the types of things that the government was doing. Um, so I see I see stereotypes as really really powerful um, political projects. Um, even if they're not intended that way by the people who produce them, they often have that effect. And and we do say that, you know, uh, even though we start with that example, I don't think that any of the stereotypes in the book results in the kind of social or political consequences that we saw in 1940s Germany. But they stereotypes matter um, for political reasons. Some of these stereotypes have effects on the world that that, depending on your sympathies, could be received as very very problematic. I think two chapters that uh, are on opposite sides of a particular issue help uh, ex explore some of those political dimensions. Uh, I believe it's Jennifer Isle who wrote the chapter on one of the cliches is religion makes people moral. 
And then Rebecca King wrote uh, another chapter on the cliche, uh, religion is bullshit. And so what Jennifer shows is that the cliche religion makes people moral. Uh, if you embrace that cliche, you're going to want to elevate the status of what you call religion in society. And so that will occur through various political projects. Um, whereas, you know, like state subsidizing of religion or pro-tolerance education, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas Jennifer Isle takes, I'm sorry, um, Rebecca King takes the chapter religion is bullshit and talks about new atheists and their desire to, you know, based on the assumption that religion is bullshit to really purge religion from the so-called public. And so you get those two chapters that uh, address the, you know, what is the place of religion? And they both explore very clearly the political implications that what's at stake here is we're going to deem something religion and then either elevate it in the public or try to push it out. And that, that's a political project. Um, one of the other real interesting things about uh, when you guys were talking about the collection and the introduction is, uh, you know, some of the, you say that some of these cliches are very common and popular, uh, but at the same time for, for others, they're uncommon or even unknown. Um, so uh, I, I thought that was really interesting. And, and maybe uh, Brad, there's something uh, of kind of different types of students that uh, don't, don't read the book in the way that uh, your, your first student did. So wh- why do some certain cliches circulate in some groups while other stereotypes are invisible to them? And and vice versa. If I could add to that question, Brad, I'm really curious. Um, have you found that some students um, are like, oh, this 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 stereotype is, makes perfect sense to me, but other ones are things that they've never heard of? And then do you find that other students have the exact opposite, that the stereotypes familiar to them are the ones that the other students thought were alien? Or do you find that they all seem to hold similar stereotypes? No, the students definitely have different stereotypes. And some students have told me that they have never heard a particular stereotype or um, like the, the one that religious, I think it was uh, learning about religion leads to tolerance. Uh, that is one of the least circulated stereotypes, at least with my students. Um, one thing or reg- regarding your question of uh, their reaction to it, uh, to the individual stereotypes, none of them, none of my students have gone on to defend the stereotypes. And I'm guessing that's not because they stopped believing the stereotypes. I'm guessing it's because they kind of embrace the spirit of the classroom and they don't want to contradict the teacher when he's the co-editor of a book that's supposed to expose <laughs> stereotypes. Um, probably, probably some more practical issues going on there. Uh, but the students haven't haven't come out and said, I, you know, in staunch defense of any stereotypes. Uh, one thing we did know notice is from talking to some of the scholars in other countries is that some of the stereotypes that we have uh, in the United States um, are regional stereotypes. And we could do another book on stereotypes of religion, about religion in Europe, for example, stereotypes about religion in Asia. And we learned from these, you know, this communication with uh, scholars overseas that uh, those books would be very different. Yeah, I think that um, I suspect that a lot of a lot of the a lot of the reason why these these stereotypes circulate strongly in some communities or with some students but then not others has you know something to do with whether or not they grew up in a red state or a blue state to some extent that um if you if you grew up in California, I suspect you're more likely to think that religions are intrinsically violent than if you grew up in mississippi um i i I haven't 
I don't have any empirical evidence on hand to confirm that hypothesis, but that's kind of what I suspect that um, that where people strongly identify as religious has something to do with what kind of what kind of stereotypes circulate in that region of the country. I would add to that. I, it would also have to do with their own religious upbringing. Um, the cliche, you know, religion is a private matter. Uh, I'm going to guess that that would be, that might circulate more perhaps in, you know, kids with Protestant backgrounds. Yep. I, I find, um, yeah. yeah, I'm unfortunately I haven't had an opportunity to teach this cause it doesn't fit into any of the existing curricula that I'm, I'm uh, doing right now. But I suspect that my students would be unfamiliar with most of these cliches. Um, I teach in the New York City region. I teach outside the city for sure. Um, I, my school is like maybe a half hour from Manhattan. So it's it's um, suburban, but uh, close to an urban area. And most of my students identify as Catholic, but they just honestly don't give a crap about Catholicism or religion. By saying they're Catholic means they their parents made them go through confirmation and their parents drag them to mass when they go home. Um, but apart from that, they don't have any kind of personal investment in Catholicism or in religion in general. Um, and that, 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 <laughs> that creates some challenges because if your students don't care about the content of the course at all, it's hard to get them to be engaged. But on the other hand, it means that I have fewer stereotypes to clear away before I get down to the kind of real work that I want to do in the classes. Um, I don't know. That doesn't really necessarily relate directly to the question you asked, but I find, I, I suspect that if I taught this, a lot of the students would find it, almost entirely new to them and they would probably be surprised uh, at some of these stereotypes. Now uh, in the introduction, you, you set up that um, many of the, the cliches or stereotypes that your authors are writing about uh, kind of are rooted or extend from um, particular historical movements or uh, periods uh, mostly situated in a kind of Euro-American uh, context. Um, and <clears throat> one of them that um, is important is this idea of kind of a, a liberal political theory about religion. Um, so can, can you tell us a little bit about what that means, kind of unpack that idea? Um, and it, what, what are some of the stereotypes that kind of extend from this, this understanding of religion uh, f- from a European kind of uh, historical context. Uh, I'll answer that, I guess, because it's it's been a point of emphasis for some of some of my um, research projects in the past. My first book was on um, liberal political philosophy and the and the concept of religion in the modern period. When um when I, when we were writing the introduction, we had looked through all the chapters and and I was thinking which of these which of the uh, background assumptions in these chapters would readers be least likely to have prior familiarity with? And I, I noticed that they had constant reference to liberal political philosophy views, um, like the idea that religion's a private matter or that um, religion in the public sphere leads to conflict. So it should, should you know, should be kept private um, things along those lines. 
Um, so we in, in included in the introduction some discussion about how the concept of religion developed in the wake of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, basically, uh, Protestant reformers um, were doing social and political projects that were threatening to other people at the time. And those people were not tolerating them. And therefore, they argued, no, our religion's a private matter. You shouldn't view it as a threat um, because it's a private matter. We're not actually a threat to you. Um, and that was an argument designed to get them to be tolerated. Um, now, there's all sorts of logical problems with their arguments and the fact that the fact that they were. Well, it's clear that uh, the Protestant Reformation did have social and political effects and clearly wasn't an entirely private matter. However, that rhetoric did function eventually to uh, as part of the a, a way of getting them to be tolerated alongside other other groups that also identified as religious. Um, so that this idea that religion's a private matter, I think, underlines uh, quite a few of the cliches and and goes back to this. Protestant Reformation rhetoric. Anything you want to add, Brad? No, I think he, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, way to go, team. Um, the, another kind of uh, common thread uh, across the chapters is this idea of kind of secularization, um, you know, different theories about the role of religion and then uh, how in modernity it uh, has less importance or less uh, social consequences. Um how do how do the chapters kind of engage, or uh, how do some of these cliches, you know, extend from this idea of secularization? Let me take a stab at that. <clears throat> the idea of secularization shows up in many of these cliches in interesting ways. Um, if we keep it in mind that uh, the idea of secularization, um, well, scholars, uh, some of the founding scholars in the academic study of religion helped create this cliche, and at least or at least played a role in. Um, disseminating and spreading the cliche. So part of, uh, part of what shows up in many of these chapters is histor- or, you know, scholars uh, who played large roles in creating the academic study of religion, they're the data for, for several of these chapters. And so in a couple of these chapters, the authors can trace figures, you know, the influence of figures like Tyler and Frazier or whatnot, um, and their beliefs that we're evolving out of religion. Um, that science will replace it, that, you know, we're, we're entering this new golden age of, uh, of reason and rationality and science where faith and superstition and religion will disappear. And so they can trace that uh, from, uh, you know, scholars of religion, from other, other sources as well, up to, you know, the so-called new atheists and their political project. So part of the, part of what was fun about that particular topic about, you know, science and evolution and the future of religion is that it allowed us to, you know, really directly engage uh, some of the founders in our field, you know, in, in addition to the more contemporary political issues and figures such as Dawkins and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, atheism, maybe you guys can talk a little bit of kind of uh, explain uh, the role of new atheism in kind of constructing or, or popularizing some of these cliches, because this becomes another kind of a strong thread across many of the chapters. Yeah, I I personally was surprised to see how much new atheism um, ended up popping up in the literature um, or yeah. in in the chapters. What's that? Oh, I said I that surprised me as well. That's all. Yeah, I I think the reason why is because 
I think the influence of the new atheist is out of proportion with the amount of emphasis that it gets in the book. But I suspect the reason why is because the new atheists represent the, the, uh, and I hate this language, but the most extreme form of a particular perspective, right? So even even if they are not as influential as they appear to be in this book, they represent the ideal type of a particular kind of perspective that religion is dangerous and we need to evolve beyond it. Um, and and then for that reason, jumping to the new atheist literature allows us to tackle the the most obvious. Um, iteration of those kinds of arguments or, or those kinds of stereotypes. If I can add to that, I agree completely that the new atheist influence uh, appears to be much bigger uh, in the book than it is, you know, in you know, American life or whatever. Um, and part of the reason that uh, new atheists show up so much in the book, it, it reflects, I think, what was a <clears throat> excuse me, a conscious decision on our part, Craig. To create to offer balanced uh, balanced stereotypes, so stereotypes mm-hmm. that some are in favor of religion and some that are against religion, uh, our desire to you know create a balanced um, I don't know portrayal of stereotypes um, included more on new atheism than maybe w- would otherwise be warranted. Is that do you recall that? Uh, that that seems fair. That we definitely didn't want all the cliches to be pro religion cliches or anti religion cliches, but like Brad said, a, a balance between them and the the new atheists uh, provide us with some of the most obvious anti-religion cliches. Um, and also, I think, and this is going to reveal, you know, some obvious bias on my part. I just think that new atheism literature is really superficial and easy to critique um, as such so that it's easy to make an example out of the new atheists because of how superficial some of their claims are, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I have an interesting aside to that um, that is in no way related to this book, but my colleague here at McDaniel, uh, if I'm recalling the story correctly, he once taught a class on new atheists or someone he knew, I forget. Anyway, um, the class, they went through like the second book and they realized that all the that they were had to do something different that's the, for the rest of the semester because the new atheists were just repeating the same theme over and over. So you you read one book, you read the second, <laughs> the second you read the third. So uh, yeah, the, the, the it's their themes are uh, quite repetitive. That sounds about right to me. Yeah, right. Um, I'd love to hear. Uh more about how uh, both you use it in your class and uh, some of the context and perhaps some of the other kind of uh, um, content you bring in conversation with the book, uh, Brad. And then also, um, Craig, if you've, if you've thought, or I'm sure you guys have both have heard of how people are using these uh, articles in their classrooms, um, how can we use stereotyping religion uh, to teach? Well, since I'm the only wait, one wait, real it. quick, Brad. Brad, be sure to mention the fact that you told me that originally um, you the the students read it as a defense of the cliche. Um, didn't that? Oh happen? yeah, uh, that happens occasionally where students will read one of the chapters and they they're not sure whose voice the author is writing in, and so. Um, which chapter, which chapter did I specifically mention to you? Oh, um, Dennis LaRusso's chapter, everyone has a faith. Um, 
some of my students thought that he was defending the cliche. And so I went back and I said, no, this is, you know, this is Dennis's voice where he's arguing that this is a cliche. And then this is the, these are the voices of the people that he's describing who believe that everyone has a faith. And so it was a matter of determining whose voice was talking. Uh, but yeah, that, that issue did come up. Is that what you were referring to? Yeah, I, I was, I was just thinking about this this week because I was teaching my critical introduction to the study of religion, where one of the chapters says something like, a lot of people assume that their religion is true and that other religions are false. And in a, a summary of the reading, a student said, Dr. Martin says that his religion is true and that other religions are false. And I was like, OK, maybe you guys need to read a little bit more carefully to separate out the summary of somebody else's argument and then the actual argument being made. Right. I think that was the issue in the book as well. Um, but back to Christian's question about uh, teaching it in the class, I've used this several times in my introduction to religious studies class. So we read major scholars in the academic study of religion, um, you know, starting from, uh, I believe, uh, Tyler all the way up to the present. Uh, so they get a variety of, met- of methods, they get a variety of methodologies, um, kind of an overview of major thinkers in the academic study of religion. And then at the end of the semester, when we've studied all these scholars and all of their theories. I've devoted the last two weeks of class, I believe, to stereotyping religion, critiquing cliches. And I started, the, the first time I taught it, I asked the students to um, to present half-hour presentations on each chapter because I wanted to see how they would teach. How, what I wanted to see what the students were taking from the reading, uh, how they were reading it without me influencing it. And it actually, they ended up, these presentations ended up going so well that I just repeated it the subsequent times when I've taught it. Um, and so the students typically, they give, you know, a 20 minute to 30 minute presentation on the cliche. Uh, they summarize the chapters. Uh, they, I asked them to look for examples of cliches of these cliches in their lives and most of them, you know, find pop culture references or something like that. And then they open it up for about a 10 minute discussion on, you know, what's the, the student's reaction to the cliches. And overall, those conversations are interesting and they allow the students to reflect on, again, reflecting on themselves and their own thoughts, you know, how they would used to think of the cliche and how they're doing it now. And so some of these conversations, they, they go from the cliche themselves to go on to talk about, um, Everything, every topic from individual students pass to how they're rethinking, you know, contemporary relationships about, I don't know, things between relationship between church and state or something like that. Uh, It opens the door to uh, contemporary to discussions of contemporary issues. So, I I mean, long story short, um, again, my name's on the cover, so the students are going to be limited to what they're going (laughs) to say back to me. Uh, but the response has been pretty positive, I, I, I think. The students have been pretty receptive, that is. Have you guys I, – I know other people use it in class. Have you heard anything from uh, from other teachers? I haven't. I've just heard similar – oh. Go, go ahead. Hmm. I was – right. I have – I don't uh, – I'm thinking I don't know if anyone else has students present on the chat. But I have heard that the conversations about the the individual chapters as a whole have gone well. Um, I don't have any other, you know, any more in depth feedback. Uh, but Craig, you had a student who made wasn't it your student who made a YouTube video? It was based on it these? wasn't my student. Um, I was I was just about to mention that there was a student, oh, and and I'll have to look up the link because I I can't remember the student's name off the top of my head, but 
one of what it, it was Richard Newton. That was probably it. I think it was Richard Newton's student at um, Eliz- Elizabethtown College, maybe. Um, his student started making these three to five minute videos, and she made one. Basically, each video explained um, a, 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 a cliche and what was wrong with the cliche based on one of the chapters in the book. Is she ended up making four or six of these little videos. I'll, I'll try to find the link, and maybe when you post this, it could be included. Uh, so that that student could get some attention. They were pretty good in my opinion. Cool. Well, what, uh, anything else you guys want to say about the project? Uh, I mean, I, I found it really interesting. I, I thought it was a, a, a fun way to kind of tackle some of these uh, more theoretical and kind of uh, sometimes obscure historical moments that really affect us today. But uh, yeah, any any other takeaways for you guys? I would just add, if you're not familiar with the book and you're interested in using it in your classroom, uh, we worked very diligently with the, uh, very closely with the contributors uh, to make these very accessible and free from as much jargon as possible. So the one of the students' common reactions is that these chapters are just so accessible. Um, so you don't have to, you know, don't expect if you get, get this book and you're not familiar with it, don't expect deep, dense theory. Uh, it's very accessible. Undergrads have little trouble interacting with it. Um, and so I think that, uh, that contributes to its, you know, to its accessibility. Yeah. Great. Um, and, uh, what, so what are, what are you guys up to now? What, what can we expect you, uh, Brad, you started telling us a little bit about your, your project you're working on, and then I'm sure you have some things, uh, in the, in the pipeline too, Greg. Yeah, I'm wrapping up the rewriting of my manuscript on Florida's faith-based prisons. Um, these are state-run faith-based prisons. Uh, they're multi-faith. Uh, the state of Florida operates three faith-based prisons and 32 faith-based dormitories in prisons. Again, these are these are all state-runs, uh, state-run facilities. Uh, the project is based on not only history, but on about a year and a half of ethnographic research I did inside the faith-based facilities. And so I'm finishing up. Uh, it, it is in contract. I got an advanced contract on it, and I am finishing um, the rewrites on that. Uh, the semester is going, so it's taking longer to rewrite it than I thought. And then uh, I really uh, fell in love with researching in prisons. Uh, I enjoy it. And so I think the next chapter I'm, or the next project I'm going to work on is going to be an analysis of religio-racial identities in prisons uh, for various reasons that I'll address in the manuscript or the book if I ever get around to doing it. Um, their religio-racial identities are very common in American prisons where people you know, say to be a member of our religion, you have to be a member of our race. And so <clears throat> I want to explore that in uh, greater detail. Uh, that'll be a long-term project. Um, that's, that's about it. Yeah, and you also just had this volume come out, uh, Method Today. Yeah, that's a proceedings of, uh, I'm now the president of North American Association for the Study of Religion, or Nasser, and Method Today is a proceedings from, I think it was 2016, Nasser's meeting. Uh, so that just came out, and then later this year, I co-edited a primary source reader with Emily Clark um, on religio-racial identities, and so that'll be coming out uh, with Bloomsbury, uh, later this year. Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. You'll interview me about that, right? If I could plug Brad's project, I read an uh, earlier draft of this prison book and, um, it was re- like 
blew me away. Like some of the things that happened in our prisons, just um, it, it was it was damning and sad, but really enlightening um, to read of some of the things that happened. So I um, I'm really looking forward to seeing the the final project that he comes up with. He I think Brad's doing really really important work. Um, but as far as my own stuff, um, I've been working on a book on discourse analysis and ideology critique for a few years. Um, it's been slow going because I've been distracted by other things. Like I recently became chair of the faculty senate in my college, and that's um, taken away a lot of the energy that I would have otherwise used to to work on this project. So it's it's coming along very slowly, but it's designed to be. Um, a post-structuralist um, account of how we can do discourse analysis and ideology critique. So often the critique of ideology critique is that um, after post-structuralism, you know, we can't claim to have direct access to reality and that ideology critique always, always claims to contrast reality as it is in itself from reality as depicted in an illusion. And I want to argue that we can do ideology critique without without doing that there's other ways to do ideology critique than than to go back to a uh early modern type of approach um so that's that's something i'm plugging away at um if i could plug my my book series so this this book stereotyping religion critiquing cliches was one of the first books to appear in my book series with bloomsbury the, the title of the book series is critiquing religion discourse culture power and um, I think that there's four or five books now, and I'm always looking for um, proposals from people who are doing kind of critical theory approaches, um, feminist approaches, Marxist approaches, post-structuralist approaches. If you have a book project that, that you know, falls under those categories, I'd love to see a proposal. Um, uh, yeah, so hopefully you can include that plug because... Uh, uh, I think that there's some really cool books, and I, I hope to see the series expand. If I can piggyback off Craig, uh, I'm uh, the series editor of the NASA Working Paper series um, that we're doing with Equinox, and we are looking for basically the exact same manuscript. <laughs> delete what Craig said and just send all those manuscripts and proposals to Brad Stoddard, McDaniel.edu. Uh, that'd be great. Okay. Well, good luck to, on all your uh, personal projects and uh, your your heated competition for the best of the best in the critical uh, <laughs> approach to the study of religion. And uh, thanks for, for making time to talk about this great book, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank man. you, Christian. We, we enjoyed really it. appreciate it. That was my conversation with Brad Stoddard and Craig Martin about stereotyping religion, critiquing cliches published with Bloomsbury in 2017. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.